Good morning. How are you all doing today? Awesome. If you are joining us here in our room for the first time this morning, or if you're joining us online for the first time, we want to say welcome. We're so glad you're here to worship with us here at Hosanna Christian Fellowship. Those of you that may not know, I am Pastor Nathan, and today we're gonna be talking about a very important topic here in the body of Christ. And the topic is praying for those who are in sin. We're gonna be looking at verses 16 and 17 of 1 John chapter five, and I really wanna key in on this very important point. The point of these verses is praying for one another when we are in sin, when you see a brother or sister in sin. The point of verses 16 and 17 are are very connected to the previous verses that we studied last week and incidentally are in a direct example of the principle we covered. And that principle that we covered last week looking at verses, uh, I believe it was 13 through 15, was simply this, that when we pray anything according to the will of God, he hears us. We can have absolute confidence that he hears us. He doesn't ignore us, he's not too busy, He's not off that day, he hears us. And we can have absolute confidence in that. And not only does he hear us, but if we have the confidence that he hears us, we have the confidence that he answers us. Now sometimes God's answer is yes, sometimes God's answer is no, sometimes the answer is wait, and sometimes it's a delayed answer, and so we keep praying, but nonetheless, we can have confidence that our Father hears us and answers us. And so the issue always comes down to when we pray, just in a general sense, is this the will of God? And so we are instructed in his word to then measure those requests back against the word of God, right? The word of God reveals his will. We're also then to follow the leading and the guiding of the Holy Spirit. And when those things all line up, we pray with absolute confidence that God hears us. But specifically, when we see a fellow believer committing sin, Do we pray? Should we pray? Well, we can be sure that it is the will of God that his kids don't sin, but is there ever a time, is there ever a sin that the Bible might instruct us to not pray for? And if the Bible teaches that, when does that happen? You know, the word of God has a lot to say about sin. The word of God's very blunt very to the point when it comes to sin. Many in the world today, and and sadly many in the church, want to dismiss or just outright dismiss the whole idea of sin and the judgment of God that comes upon sin. Many of our society today have this idea of you do you, right? They have this concept that if you don't accept or endorse whatever behavior, anybody would choose to live in any context. If you don't accept it, you're a bigot. You're hate-filled. You're evil. If you dare suggest that there's any moral standard of any kind, and then consequences for breaking that moral standard, well, they say you're the problem. And that is the finger that the world points at the church today. Or, and this can happen with Christians sometimes too, people adopt the idea, well, well, nobody's perfect. So sin isn't really that big of a deal. It's not really that big of an issue when, when I sin or when someone else sins. And so they, they don't take it as seriously, forgetting that the Bible says the wages of sin is death. 
Proverbs 14.34 is still true today. And it says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Sin should be taken seriously. Sin should be taken seriously. I mean, think about it. The whole purpose of God coming to this earth, God the Son clothing himself in flesh, Jesus Christ the Messiah coming to be with us, the whole purpose of his coming was to deal with the sin issue. That was the whole purpose of God coming, to deal with the sin issue, to deal with the thing that separated his beloved creation from him. That was why he came to this earth. He suffered, he was tortured, he died a horrible death on the cross because of our sin. So before we could ever or would ever flippantly say or think or act in any way as if sin is no big deal, we should take a long hard look at the cross. Because it shows us what God thinks about sin. The cross shows us that God considered sin to be so utterly devastating that he allowed his perfect son to come and pay the ultimate price for our sin. To deal with it once and for all because it was so consumingly devastating. Well, the text before us today, 1 John 5, 16 and 17, um, these two verses, they have been interpreted in various ways over the centuries by different people. Um, Some consider these verses two of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture to interpret. And that largely revolves revolves around the idea that these verses mention two things that people want to know, what are they? They mention sin that doesn't lead to death and sin that does lead to death. And oh boy, do we want the definitions of those things, don't we? Some of it, I think, revolves around our nature. I include myself in this. Our nature is we want to know what a line is so that we can get as close to it as possible without jumping over. Not all of us, but the struggle in interpreting these verses verses has been over the years of what, what John means by sin that leads to death and sin that doesn't lead to death. And depending on your interpretation of those things, can a believer then commit a sin that leads to death? And and what do you do when when they do that? Because one way people have interpreted these verses is says there is a sin that leads to death, but I don't say you should pray about that. So, John, are you telling us not to pray for believers who are committing a sin leading to death? I don't understand. We're going to dig through and deal with all of that today. But I don't want to forget, and I don't want us to forget that the point of these passages, the point of this passage in these verses is not what is the sin that leads to death and what is the sin that doesn't lead to death. The point is, is that we as believers engage in active, loving, intercessory prayer for one another, especially when we fall into sin. That is the point of these verses we're looking at today. And then, but we're gonna deal with all that and dig through all of that, but first we're gonna worship, worship God, praise him. You know, we are so thankful to God. So thankful because he dealt with the sin issue in our lives once and for all. He dealt with the permanent penalty of sin. He's the one that came and did the work to build the bridge so that we can have a relationship with him again. And that is so beautiful and so wonderful and so worth praising him for. So let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, so much. Lord, you are so worthy of our praise. You are so worthy of our worship. God, you are so perfect and beautiful and holy. You are just and right and true. 
Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life, Lord. And we know that none come to the Father but through you. And we're so grateful that you did that work to allow us to come into the very presence of God. To confidently stand there knowing that we are his kids, that we are saved, that we are redeemed and adopted into the family of Christ. That we have that access and we confidently know we have that access even when we mess up, that we can come to you and say, Dad, I'm so sorry I messed up and you forgive us. And that in that process, we have the privilege and the responsibility to lift up our siblings in Christ, our brothers and sisters, when they fall into sin. And so, Lord, help us today to understand what your word is teaching, what it is sharing with us, what it is encouraging us to do, that we would be people committed to prayer. Prayer in general, yes, but specifically, Lord, people committed to praying for one another, that we wouldn't fall into sin. But when we do, that we would pray for one another, that you would grant us life and victory to get us out of those things that just destroy us in so many ways. Father, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover, and so uh, if I start talking too fast, um, I apologize in advance. Okay. (laughs) But before we dig into the challenges of uh, what verse 16 and 17 of 1 John 5 are teaching, I want to start by talking about the real point of the passage, and that point is our responsibility in prayer the responsibility we have of prayer. And then we'll look at verse 16 and 17 and in greater detail and deal with some of the difficulties and the challenges presented there. But to give context to the whole thing, the context of verses 16 and 17 actually starts back in verse 14. And so, and collectively it shows us the the great importance of prayer and the calling that we have. Verse 14, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. So this section here, sets up this really important idea, this really important principle for us that if we pray according to the will of God, we can have absolute confidence that God will hear those prayers. And then John kind of does a, for example, if you see someone involved in sin, if you see a fellow believer involved in sin not leading to death, pray and God will give them life. That's the overarching principle here that these verses are teaching us, that believers have a responsibility to pray for other believers to pray in general, but specifically to pray when we see someone that is committing sin. If you think about it, I mean, just imagine what life would be like if we all had this gigantic network of people who were constantly holding us up before God in prayer. Wouldn't life be good? (laughs) I think life would, 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 would be a lot better in some ways, right? And and that's one thing that the church does, and it's one thing that we do here. Here at Hosanna, we have a prayer chain. If you have prayer needs and prayer requests, you can call in, and then it goes out to a whole team of people that are praying. You know, prayer works. We know prayer works, and prayer is important. The New Testament writers saw the value in other believers praying for other believers, right? In, In Thessalonians, Paul says a couple times, pray for us. Pray for us. In the book of James, he said, if you're sick, call for the elders, 
and be anointed with oil and have them pray over you in the name of the Lord. Paul again in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, I urge prayers for everyone. And then he kind of specifically points out kings and those in authority. Charles Spurgeon once said this, and this one personally uh, ministers to my heart. <laughs> um, he, says, he said to his congregation, as long as I have your prayer, I can beat anything. But if I don't have your prayers, I can't do a thing. And so I love that, that quote, right? You know, pray for me as I'm praying for you too. You know, prayer's huge. Prayer's important. Prayer affects the, the, the will and the power of God in the world. You know, in Acts chapter 12, we have this great example of the power of prayer for other believers. If you remember in Acts 12, it's a story of Peter being put in prison after Herod cut off uh, James' head. And when Herod cut off James' head, he, he was really excited that the Jews were so pleased about this. He thought, hey, if they were that excited about me killing James, wow, they're really gonna be uh, happy with me if I kill Peter. And so he throws Peter in jail. And then in Acts chapter 12, verse five, it tells us, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. And then if you know the story, it says an angel showed up, sprung Peter out of jail, and the whole thing was a result of prayer. People praying. Now, they didn't go protest the prison. I'm not saying protesting's a bad or wrong thing. They didn't just write letters to their congressmen, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, that's effective, that's good. But the thing that affected the greatest change was their prayer. They prayed fervently to God for Peter. And God did an amazing thing. And what amazing things can happen when we are supported and sustained by the prayers of our church family. Sadly, some in the church today have, have consigned prayer to kind of like a last resort, right? Well, we've tried everything else. Might as well pray. And then we pray. And then we don't even pray in faith because in our heart we're going, eh, nothing's going to happen, Right? You know, or people just give up or stop praying because they don't see the answer right away, right? I prayed. I said, God, do it. And it didn't happen right then, so I'm just gonna stop praying. I prayed for my mom for 10 years to come to know Jesus Christ. Guess what? She knows Jesus Christ today. <laughs> Blessed. 10 years, though. 10 years. Now, I'm not gonna lie, I had seasons with those 10 years where I'm like, it's never gonna happen, right? And, you know, but then I'd be like, no, I need to keep praying and keep praying. And so we pray, and we don't give up. Paul said to pray without ceasing, right? Pray without ceasing, always be in an attitude of prayer, always be in that mindset of like, God, I'm just lifting that up to you, and I see an issue, and God, I know you can take care of that, I pray for that. And, and, and then God himself said, call to me, and I will answer you. So we know biblically the admonition is that prayer is the first thing we should do in every situation, not the last thing. And so develop that habit. If, if you don't have that habit, develop that habit. Prayer first. Pray. Let that be your first go-to, and then do all the other things that God may be leading you to do, whether it's protesting, showing up, writing letters, calling, you know. But pray first. Pray. Make that your habit. And this is on the basis of this admonition here, that, that based on our confidence as, 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 as his kids, based on the confidence we have that, that he is our father, we can confidently before, come before him always and at all times with all things. And when we pray according to his will, we can have absolute confidence that he hears that prayer. Now, you might not see the answer right away, and that's why we're to keep praying, but you can absolutely have confidence 
that he's heard it. And then John teaches us that, look, if you've prayed according to his will and, and you confidently know this is a prayer that was according to his will and I know he's heard it, then you know that he's answered because he says if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. But again, sometimes you don't see the answer right away. But the idea here is that, that we don't pray going, I hope God gets it. I hope he hears me. Hope he's not busy today. Hope he's not, you know, day off. No, he hears me. And if it's a prayer according to his will, he's answered. He's working on it. He's doing it. And so a great example of this kind of prayer is praying for others in the family of God that are committing sin. Because it is absolutely God's will that his kids be free from and free of sin. That's God's will. We talked about it in the intro, right? Sin is what separated us from God. That's why God came to this earth to die as the sacrifice, the propitiation of our sins, to, to take away that barrier that separated us from God, tearing the veil top to bottom so that we have access to him. John's whole letter has been building up to this point. Right, walking in the light, walking in obedience, walking in love. That God doesn't want us to sin. God doesn't want us to live in sin. God doesn't want us to commit sin. But he's also established a very big truth about sin. That true, genuinely saved believers will sin. It'll happen. So confess it when it happens. Personally, confess your sins to God that you would be cleansed and forgiven. Trust that because you're his child, you have access to him. And pray for others in the family when you see that they're committing sin. Pray for them. So verse 16 gives us a couple parameters for how and when this type of intercessory prayer um, should happen. If you look at verse 16, he says, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. So the first thing I want to point out there is he says fellow believer right? That is a word, that is a term that John uses over and over and over again in his writings to refer to a genuinely saved child of God, all right? Now, that's important in, in, in the interpretation of these verses. He's referring to a believer, not someone who thinks they're a believer, not someone who might be, not, no, he's referring to someone who is confidently a child of God. So we can be certain that he's talking about saved people, so he opens up there when he says, if anyone sees. That word if in the Greek, it's that, that interesting word that can sometimes be better rendered since. It's also, and this is the case here, one of those times where it could be better rendered whenever or when, right? So it's not if as in they might not, might not. He's going, whenever you see a fellow believer committing sin, so the idea here is this truth that every believer, every true, genuinely saved Christian that is adopted into the family of God will commit sin. We will stumble. We will fall. Matter of fact, in 1 John 1, 8, he said, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So the reality that will sin is, is, is reality. So he goes, if you see anyone, a fellow believer, or whenever you see a fellow believer, he should ask. You should pray for them. Now, if you don't think praying for one another is really high on the priority list, I want you to consider what is the ministry of Jesus Christ to you today. For three and a half years, he was here on this earth. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He healed. 
he taught, he preached the kingdom of God, he flipped over tables. <laughs> then he died for our sins on the cross, brutally tortured, beaten, suffered. He died, but then he rose again, spent some time with his disciples, and then he ascended back to heaven to the right hand of the Father. And what has he been doing for the last 2,000 years? Well, Romans 8.34 says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25, it says he always lives to intercede for them. Jesus prays for his people. He prays for you and me. He prays for his children. That's what he's been doing for the last 2,000 years. Ever since his ascension back to heaven, he's been praying for his family, interceding for them. So, so anytime you and I pray for another believer, we are engaging in the very ministry that Jesus himself thought was important enough to always live to do. We're engaging in that same ministry. So before you ever think, oh, it's not important that I pray for my brothers and sisters in sin, well, that's, Jesus thought it was important. He's doing it. So it's important for us to do as well in following his example. It's an absolute necessity and responsibility of prayer that we have. Some of you are here today in this room, online maybe, because someone prayed for you. Whether it was a grandmother, whether it was a mom or a dad or a friend, someone prayed for you. Just a few weeks before I gave my life to the Lord, I found out after the fact that my brother had made a commitment. He was like, my brother is messed up and he's doing messed up things and he didn't like it. And he's just like, I can't change it. And I talked to him and he tells me to shut up. So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna pray. And so he said, I was praying like aggressively for you. He goes, and they weren't all nice prayers. God smack him upside the head, you know. <laughs> but just a few weeks after he started that, God did these supernatural works in my life and drew me to himself and drew me into salvation. Prayer works. Prayer works. And we're to pray for one another. It's absolutely necessary. And then within the body of Christ, you know, parents, your, your kids need your prayers. Kids. Your parents need your prayers. Husbands, your wives need your prayers. Wives, your husbands need your prayers. We should be praying people. But I want to point out there, he says, if anyone sees. And then back in verse 14, he said, this is the confidence we have before him. When you put those two things together, seen and before him, this precludes gossip. This precludes gossip. See, it's not about hearing about someone sinning and then bringing it to the prayer group of other Christians to talk about it. That's not what it's about. Now, again, prayer groups are important. Prayer times are important. And, and there are definitely times when maybe leadership or, or someone needs to be made aware of something that's taken place. I'm not saying that, that that can't happen, but far too often, believers can sometimes mask their need to gossip with, I'm so concerned. I'm so concerned. You know, if, if you're so concerned for that brother or that sister in sin, and you should be, by the way, that's kind of the point here, you should be, if you just have to talk about them, 
Talk about them to God. Talk about them to God. Express your concern for them to the Lord. Join Jesus in interceding for them. This is the example Jesus set for us, right? There was a time where Jesus saw that Peter had some spiritual pride. And so he said, Peter, you know, you're gonna deny me before this whole thing is over, right? Peter's like, nah, no way. I'm Peter the Rock. There's no way I'm gonna turn on you. And he's like, Peter, Satan has been asking for you. He wants to sift you like wheat. But what we don't read there is then Jesus went, you know, you know, Peter stay over there and gathered all the rest of the guys. Hey guys, we gotta get together. You know, we, we gotta pray for Peter because have you seen how prideful he is? Man, isn't he prideful? Right, Andrew? Is it, yeah, oh, oh man, it is overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, you got a story about how prideful? Oh my goodness gracious, he is such a just, whew. yeah, we need to pray for him. But we're gonna spend 35 minutes sharing stories about how bad he is first. That's not what Jesus did. Luke twenty two thirty two, 32, Jesus to Peter says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. I have prayed for you, he says. That's the example. That's the example. That's the first step. That's the go-to. And why do we pray? Well, verse 16 in 1 John 5, he says that we should ask and God will give life to him. John uses this word life several times in this letter, I think 15, 16 times. And in every instance but one, the word life is, is translated from the, the Greek word zoe. It's this Greek word zoe. And this word zoe means to exist in a condition or a state of happiness, exuberance, energy, vitality, and vigor. It's the idea of having this energizing happiness, this state of being where just everything's good. It's good, it's right. But then the word also carries the connotations of provision or property. And so it's also this energizing happiness in having everything I need. So collectively, this word zoe refers to being in a state of, of health, strength, satisfaction, contentment, peace, joy, wholeness without any sense of loss or lack or worry or fear of not having something or missing out on something. It's a contentment that is combined with having the, the energy and the motivation and the exuberance, the vitality that comes from that. It's not just having a heartbeat, you're living, you have life, it's you have life. You're alive. God is good, I'm his kid. It's, I have everything I need, I'm, life is good. There may be challenges, but I'm okay because I'm God's. This is this word, zoe. It's a word used to describe a quality of being, a quality of living. And it refers to that quality both here and forever. On its own, the word can refer to that type of state of life here in, in, in our existence on earth and forever. Now, when John uses this word zoe specifically in context to refer to forever life, eternal life only, every single time in this letter, he prefaces the word zoe with the Greek word aionios. And you'll see it translated in your Bible, eternal 
life. So every time John uses this word life, he's talking about this, this state in general. When he's only referring to eternal life, he always prefaces it with this word eternal. All other times, he's referring to this state of existence where there's no worry, there's no lack, no want, there's peace, joy, contentment, everything's good, and I have everything I need. 1 John 1, 2 He started out, he opened this letter telling us what the source of that is, right? What was from the beginning. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life, Zoe, was revealed. And we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. That life is in Christ. That life is is Christ. This state of being he's talking about is found in Christ and it's found in salvation when we're, when we're granted it by God and, and we know that we have this, this place, this state now and we have it forever because of Jesus Christ. But we pray for those who are fellow believers committing sin well, we know, doesn't sin rob that from us? Doesn't sin rob that zoe out of our lives? That exuberance, that vitality? It's not just talking about health and strength and vitality in just a physical sense. It's both mental and physical. We've all seen people who are believers. We know they're believers, but they appear to be the walking dead, right? Maybe that's been you at some point in time in your life. There's no joy, no vitality, no spark in their eyes. They're, they're gloomy, they're depressed, they're, 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 they're sluggish, right? When we as children of God find ourselves walking in darkness, walking in disobedience and sin, we lose that energizing happiness that all is good and all is right. I'm good before God. It's, no, we lose that when we sin. We fall into all manner, manner of mental and physical lethargy and dullness and depression and, and, and a lot of us have been there, right? Mentally, that life and exuberance has, has disappeared and so physically we're not like, I have no energy to do anything. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to lift a finger. I don't. Many of us have experienced that. We've all seen it, a brother or sister who seems to have lost their life. And contextually, when we see a brother or sister committing sin, and that word see there means that, that we have firsthand knowledge. It's not just we've heard about it. No, we're, we've seen it, we're aware of it. You know, among all the things that, that we can do for a brother or sister that are good, approach them, talk to them, ask questions. Among all of that, the most powerful, most effective thing we can do is to pray that God would give life back to them that God would restore their joy and their peace and their exuberance and their vitality, that God would bring them back to that place where they're, at, they're, just, they're just, they have life. Now, yes, people still have to submit and yield and repent and obey God, right? But God is the only one that could work at the heart level. God is the only one that could speak into their soul, and so we pray. We pray. So now let's get into the difficulties with the verse. If anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should ask, and God will give life to him. To those who commit sin that doesn't lead to death, 
There is sin that leads to death. I am not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to death. Now, there is much debate on what John is referring to here, specifically in these couple phrases he uses about sin leading to death, sin not leading to death. And to be quite honest, guys, I've been wrestling with this all week long. And I've been talking to people, and to be quite honest, people are like, hey, Nathan, how you doing? And then I just go, First John 5, 16 and 17, and they're like, whoa, I just asked how you're doing, bro. It's just, it's been on my mind, you know? Because I've, I've just been thinking this through and wrestling with this text because I want to be faithful to the word of God. And there are many different translations on what this means and, and how it comes together, and, and, but I, I, I want to be faithful to the context. I want to be faithful to the words that are being used. And so the interpretation of this I'm going to share with you today, I know for a fact disagrees with some people. And there are theologians and pastors that have a completely different take on that, and, and I think that's okay. Um, we can talk about it, but, but, but I'm going to share with you what, what I believe the Lord has given me in these verses. But the questions that come up when you read these, these two verses is, what is the sin that doesn't lead to death? What is a sin that leads to death? And if they're specifics, why didn't John tell us? Why did he just write it that way and have us 2,000 years later debating it and having 10 million YouTube videos about it? Is it because the original readers knew what he was talking about? That's one interpretation of this, right? Oh, it, it, it's written as if the original readers, they, they knew what he was talking about. Is the sin that leads to death something a fellow believer can commit? What does John mean by death? Is he referring to physical death? Spiritual death? Both? Is John then teaching that there's a particular sin that a brother and sister could commit that we shouldn't pray for? Which is, these are all ways some people interpret this. And then how does that relate to the life that we are to pray God to grant fellow believers committing sin that doesn't lead to death? Important questions, so let's, let's dig into it. Um, the first thing I wanna deal with is that word death. I think that word death uh, is important into, into interpreting these verses in, in context of, of you know, the entire revelation of God's word. But that word death there, interesting, the root word for it is Thanatos. Yes, that sounds like Thanos from the Marvel movies, right? Which they may have got it from that. Um, but the, the root word Thanatos, there's eight different variations of this word that refer to death in different ways in different contexts, okay? Um, Somewhat similar to when we talk about the word agape love. You know, we, we, you off, you've often heard pastors say, and I've said this, in English we have one word, love. But we obviously mean something different when we say I love pizza and I love my wife. It's obviously two different types of love. It, it should be, okay? Now in that instance, it's actually different Greek words. But some Greek words, they have variations of one word that, that kind of carry those same different meanings. And so these eight variations are, are generally grouped into two large groupings. The first grouping um, of the variations of this word thanatos, the word is referring to natural physical death. All right, it's referring to the danger of physical death. Um, there's places where it refers to physical death personified. There's places where it's referring to physical death as a penalty but it's all wrapped around the concepts of physical death, like this, this physical, natural body dying. Uh, for example, Hebrews 2.9. It 
It talks about Jesus being crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Now, that can't mean that Jesus suffered eternal spiritual death. So we know by context and everything, it's talking about this physical death on the cross. Then in Romans 6, 9, it says, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again, death no longer rules over him. So that's a picture of saying because he's already physically died, he's not gonna physically die again, and then death personified, death will no longer have or rule over him, have power over him. So that's the first major grouping. The second major grouping of this word death, thanatos, is death viewed spiritually and eternally in contrast to having a living relationship with God. The idea here, incidentally, is eternal separation from zoe. So it's not talk of, talking necessarily about being dead, but it's, it's, it's viewing eternal separation from God or what we might refer to as eternal judgment in hell, that separation from God, it's viewing that as death. And so that separation from Zoe, that is Christ, found in Christ, given by Christ, and now promised eternally for those in Christ, being separated from that is seen as death. Um, and like I said, it's that forever punishment in hell and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, examples of this, you got John eight fifty one. Truly, I tell you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Obviously, that doesn't mean everybody who keeps his word will never physically die because every human being dies physically. Romans 6, 23, incidentally, for the wages of sin is death. Now, often we read that and, and we'll use that to talk about like, hey, you know, sin will kill you, right? But, but the actual variation of the word there. He's not talking about the physical death that, that can happen with sin. He's talking about the wages of sin is eternal separation from God. But watch this. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the idea there is that we've earned eternal, eternal separation from God by our sin, eternal judgment. But God offers us the free gift of eternal life by faith in Christ. And then these, these variations of this word death that, that refer to a spiritual or eternal death, you see them in Revelation 2.11, Revelation 20, 20 verse 6, 20 verse 14, and 21 verse 8. And in all of those instances, he's referring to the lake of fire that is referred to in Revelation as the second death. So there's a physical death, and then we stand before God, and there's a judgment, and then if you're not, your name is not found in the book of life, you suffer a second death which is being cast into the lake of fire, eternal separation from God. Now, here's where I struggled. <laughs> um, how does John use this word in 1 John? Well, he uses this word thanatos, translated into death in our English, six times, six times in his letter. Every single time it's translated thanatos to death in 1 John, it's the second usage of the word. It's death as in the idea of an eternal separation from God. Now that was difficult for me because a lot of people read 1 John 5, 16 and 17 and they go, oh, well the, the sin that doesn't lead to death and the sin that leads to death, that's talking about physical death. And, and so we get into the context of all that type of stuff. And, um, but that's not the word that he's using here. That isn't to say that there aren't examples of sin leading to physical death. Right, you go through scripture and you have the example of Ananias and Sapphira, you know that story, right? In the book of Acts, early in the church. 
everybody was selling their stuff and bringing the money collectively together to take care of the Christians that were part of the church. And, and you know, long story short, they lied about what they were giving. They came to Peter and, and, and they said, hey, Peter, here's, here's the entire amount that we sold our house for. And they were lying. They, they held back a portion for themselves, which would have been completely fine had they been honest about it, but they lied. And so Peter said, Why, why'd you lie? You haven't lied to uh, me. You lied to the Holy Spirit. You lied to God. And then they were killed for it, physically dead. In 1 Corinthians 11.30, you have the example of people treating communion, communion, holy communion in the church as an opportunity to party and to get drunk. And they were treating communion with radical disregard and radical disrespect. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.30, this is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. And that's a, a euphemism in the word to refer to physically dying. You go to the Old Testament, there's a whole lot of sins that had the death penalty. And then modern times, sure, there's a lot that a believer can do sin-wise that would literally kill them. There's a lot, right? You, you, you get sexual diseases from infidelity or sleeping around before you're married, and, and those things will kill you. You can abuse drugs or alcohol to a point where it physically kills you. But conversely, sometimes they don't. Sometimes they don't. I say that to say this. Um, there is sin that will physically kill you, but, but that, that simply isn't the word that, that the Holy Spirit inspired John to use here in these verses. Um, the word for physical death is simply not the word used here, and so personally, I, I, I can't... I, I reject the interpretation that says he's talking about sin that leads to physical death. I just, I personally reject that interpretation because of the word he uses here. It's not to say that physical death can't happen from sin. It's just that that's not what John is talking about here in 1 John 5, in my opinion. Um, and I say opinion as, and as I believe that's what God has shown me. So let's read the verses again, okay? 1 John 5, 16 and 17. And if, if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to eternal, permanent, spiritual separation from God, he should ask and God will give life to him, to those who commit sin that doesn't lead to eternal, permanent separation from God. There is sin that leads to eternal, permanent, spiritual separation from God. I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin that doesn't lead to eternal, permanent, spiritual separation from God. Now, we read it that way, and now we go, well, then, is John saying a genuine believer can commit sin that will eternally separate them from God? Is that what John is, is establishing here? You know, John's drawing a distinction between a fellow believer committing this sin, and then he mentions this other sin, so is that what he's talking about? Can a believer be saved and lose their salvation? Well, we, we know over the entire course of Scripture that your salvation is secure, I mean, John has spent five chapters talking about this is how you know that you know him. This is how you know you're secure in your salvation. So, so it can't be that. What is John saying here? And I personally believe that, that, that in order to answer that question, the context of the entire letter to John, including its background context, is important to uh, answering that question. And so we're going to do a quick, hopefully, maybe five to ten minute overview of the entire book of John to bring us to these verses. And so uh, buckle your seatbelt. And let's go. So John has spent so much time in this letter establishing who is 
and who isn't genuinely uh, saved, who isn't a genuinely saved child of God. He's, his whole letter has been about establishing this, about how we are saved and, and all that. But, but if you go all the way back to the background context of this letter, and we dealt with that when we started this book, you have to remember that John was writing this whole letter to combat Gnostic teaching that was coming into the church. Gnostic teaching. Teaching. It was a heretical teaching that was starting to infiltrate the church, and Gnostics claimed, one of their claims, is that all matter, all matter, physical matter, was inherently evil and was irredeemable, couldn't be saved in any way, shape, or form. And so because matter was inherently evil, our spirit must then be inherently good. But they are separate. And so in claiming that all matter was inherently evil, they started to bring into the church and introduce this idea that there was no way Jesus could have had a physical body because he's God. And so there's no way he could have had a physical body. And if he didn't have a physical body, that meant that there was no death on the cross, there was no resurrection. And then past that, they said, and death and resurrection wasn't necessary anyways because the physical body and the spirit were so separate, so disconnected, that guess what? It ultimately doesn't matter if you sin. It doesn't matter if you live unrighteously with your physical body because it's irredeemable. It's just gonna die and it has no effect on your spiritual state one way or the other. That's what the Gnostics were bringing into the church. And so some in the church were starting to think, well, maybe they're right. Maybe sin doesn't matter. Maybe it doesn't matter if we do good or do wrong or live righteously or unrighteously, but I believe then and now, experience in the word of God tells us that sin does matter. Sin does affect us now, and it has an effect eternally. For those who don't know God, sin leads to an eternal, permanent separation from God. For those who do know God, and those who don't know God, sin has an effect here and now on earth. It leads to division and selfishness and disharmony and disunity. It leads to a lack of zoe, life. It, it, it wrecks our vitality both mentally and physically. It robs us of our joy and peace. So it wrecks our zoe here and now. And without Christ, it permanently separates you from the zoe that is God himself. The life so it does matter both now and eternally. Sin does matter. Sin does affect us now. Sin does affect us eternally. So John is going, whoa, 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 whoa. I am declaring to you the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the life, the Zoe. And we declare this, he says in chapter one, so that you may have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and his son, Jesus. I'm declaring to you that Jesus is the life and he is from the beginning, and he is God here manifested in the flesh, so that the disunity and the disharmony and the division and all that comes with allowed or ignored sin will cease to continue in your fellowships. And so he goes on to say, look, you don't have fellowship with God if you choose to walk in darkness. He says, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's unity and harmony here. So, so don't say that you don't have sin. Don't say that you haven't sinned. Don't say that there's no such thing as sin as the Gnostics are teaching because you do, you have, and there is. That's my phone. 
Somebody must be upset with my interpretation. Okay, it's done beeping at me. <laughs> so he goes, you have sinned. So, so chapter one, confess it, be forgiven, and be cleansed. And he goes, you could do that because chapter two, you have an advocate with the Father who is your atoning sacrifice before the Father, Jesus Christ, right? Who was physically here and physically died on the cross to pay the price for your sins. And in doing that, and you put your faith in that, it, it secures your eternal life in him. So don't think that because you have sinned or admit that sin exists or admit that sin matters, don't think that, well, if I'm admitting sin, I can't possibly be saved because, you know, if I'm admitting sin and evil, I'm embracing that. No, he goes, as a matter of fact, this is how you know, chapter two, that you're God's kids. This is how you know that you know him and that you're truly indeed saved. You have a new nature. You have a new internal desire that, that wants to do what God wants, wants to live how God wants, wants to keep his commandments, that doesn't want to sin. You have an internal nature that is different. Your, your norm, your habit is now to obey God. That's one of the ways you know that, that you're his. And then he goes on to say that, that overall, that general obedience is about loving people, loving God and loving people. And you're not gonna do or pursue things that hurt God or hurt your family in Christ. So then he goes on to say, don't love the world or the things in the world. Don't pursue self-indulgence and self-promotion and have pride in, per, in your possessions. People who love God don't do that. For example, there are some who have gone out from our fellowships to live however they want. There are some who have gone out to live according to Gnostic teaching, and they deny that Jesus is the Christ saying that the atonement doesn't matter because it doesn't matter. sin doesn't need to be forgiven because it's inherently just a part of an evil body. And they're trying to deceive you with this new special knowledge, right? Gnostic, it means knowledge, not, uh, gnosis. And they have the special knowledge in how to get close to God and how to get, and so, but, but they're wrong. They're liars, John says, and you know they're wrong because you have the Holy Spirit within you. And you have the Holy Spirit within you because you've been born of him. Chapter three, what manner of love is this that God would call us his children? God loves you so much that he adopted you through your faith in him. He adopted you into your family. He changed your very hearts. He gave you his nature. Yeah, one day we will be completely free from the temptation of sin and, and, and the, the want to, to give in to sin, but but. That, that'll happen one day, but, but for now, because we have his nature, God's kids don't want to habitually live in sin and lawlessness. God's kids want to do God's works. Those who aren't don't, and those who don't aren't. So then he says, so what does this obedience look like? Again, loving one another the way God loves us, to love practically, to love actually. Following the example of Jesus Christ in sacrificial love, following his example and the one who laid down his life for us. And he goes, even when our own hearts and our own conscience try to condemn us and say that, no, no, you, you, you've, you've sinned. You can't possibly be God's kids. We can rest assured. We can be absolutely confident that because we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the Son of God, and we love one another as he has loved us, we can be confident that we remain secure in Christ. But then he goes on to say, so the answer isn't to pretend sin doesn't matter. The answer isn't to cast aside who Jesus is. The answer isn't to cast aside what Jesus did as unimportant or irrelevant. Chapter four, he goes, no, instead, test the motivation behind those who are trying to lie to you and tell you otherwise. Test their motivation. Find out what they're really getting at. 
Find out what they're really about, and you'll find that they're of the world. Because they speak like the world, and the world hears them. But not us. We love one another. After the example and the nature of God who first loved us. And we can't help but to pursue loving God and to love others because that is the very nature that we've been given because God's nature is love. God is love. And when we express our love for him, chapter five, by choosing to live in obedience to him, by choosing to say, God, I'm, I'm gonna choose to do what you want me to do and we do that under the power of the Holy Spirit and we ultimately do that by choosing to do what is loving towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is the opposite of sin, the opposite of loving the world, the opposite of selfishness. When we do that, we prove that we are his. We prove that we are saved. And we agree with the testimony of his baptism and the testimony of his death and the testimony of the Holy Spirit within us that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to die for our sins, to pay the price for our unrighteousness. And he had to do that because he is the only acceptable sacrifice for our sin against God. Then he rose again, and he defeated the power of death. He defeated the power of death, the permanent sentence that that death had on us, the permanent declaration that you will be forever in hell paying the price for your own sins. He defeated the power of death to hold us in its chains, permanently breaking its hold and claim on all who would believe in Jesus. Yes, one day we will all physically die, sin or no sin, but only those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will then live in eternal, exuberant, joyful, right, peaceful, satisfied, content life forever. Hallelujah to that, right? But then John says, those who do not will suffer permanent separation from God and all that he is and suffer in torment forever, paying the price for their own sins. And so at the tail end of John chapter five, John says, I want you to know this. I want you to be sure of this. I want you to have confidence in this so that you won't let sin conquer and divide the unity and the fellowship of God's family and wreck your life so that you won't let these lies of the Gnostics lead you to tragic living. Yeah, John is saying sin is a big deal. Sin is not unimportant. Sin does matter. Sin does affect our lives and our fellowship together. It is not to be ignored or minimized like the Gnostics are teaching. And so John, combating Gnostic teaching, isn't even attempting to identify which sin leads to death and which sin does not lead to death. There is no list. He's not trying to specify which ones do and which ones don't. He's referring to sin, in in, in my belief here, in a broad and abstract way and establishing the fact that there is sin that will affect humans eternally. But for the child of God, sin only affects us temporally. But it still needs to be dealt with. It still needs to be dealt with. So if anyone sees a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to eternal, permanent, spiritual separation from God, he should ask and God will give life to him. What is the sin that doesn't lead to death? For the one who believes in the name of Son of God, 
For the one who knows that they have eternal life, the one who has been adopted and forgiven and changed and regenerated by God, the sin that doesn't lead to eternal death is all of them. All of them. No sin will consign any true believer to eternal death because they have been forgiven. All their sin has been forgiven and paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. But sin does affect our zoe now. It does affect our life here and now. It does destroy our mental and physical health now. It does mess with our strength and our vibrancy. It destroys our joy and our peace and our happiness and our confidence before him. And in all of that, sin destroys our fellowship together as the body of Christ, doesn't it? And so John says, when you see a fellow believer committing a sin that doesn't lead to eternal death, which is all of them, because no sin leads to eternal death for those that know God, don't write them off as if they're permanently lost. Don't say it's not my responsibility. Don't be like Cain and say, am I my brother's keeper? Don't think the sin is no big deal. Don't think it's not my problem. Don't ignore it instead because you love them and you know that sin robs them of joy and peace and vitality and life here and now, pray for them. We're not even talking about their eternal because they can't commit a sin that leads to eternal separation from God because they're securely saved and we've talked about that for five chapters. Pray for them and ask God to give life back to them. That's what I believe he's saying in the first part of verse 16 there. But then he says this almost parenthetical statement, right? There is sin that leads to eternal permanent separation from God, death. And then he goes, I'm not saying he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin. And I think what John's doing here is just in case you then think I'm minimizing sin now, just in case you think I'm, I'm minimizing it, there is sin that leads to eternal separation from God. And I'm not pointing out anything in particular. What is the sin that leads to death? He, he's not pointing out anything particular because right after that, he goes, all unrighteousness is sin. All wrongdoing is sin. So what is the sin that leads to death? All of them. All of them lead to death for those who don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's no list. The wages of sin, all of it is death. And for those that don't know Jesus, all sin leads to eternal separation from God. And then he goes, I'm not saying you should pray about that. Whoa, 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 John. Are you telling us that we shouldn't pray for non-believers? Are you telling us to, to not pray for those who don't know Jesus? Well, that word saying there, I am not saying, that word in the Greek means to give one's opinion. I believe what John is saying here is he goes, look, there, there is sin that leads to death. But I'm not giving opinion one way or the other here about praying for those who don't know God and committing sin. What he's saying is, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ. This discussion about praying for those who are committing sin that's gonna eternally, we're not having that discussion right now is what John is saying. We're not dealing with that. He's not saying, I'm instructing you to not pray for people. He's going, look, I'm just not giving an opinion about that right now. 
That's not what I'm dealing with here at this point in my letter. That's not the purpose and goal of my writing. I'm not talking about or even addressing praying for those outside of the family of God. He's not saying not to. He's just not giving instruction on it. Does that make sense? Okay. He's not indicating whether, whether there are particular sins over others that do lead to death because we know. I mean, Scripture clearly teaches us to, to pray for those that don't know God to know God, right? You, you take the whole counsel of God's word. We get that instruction very clearly that we are to pray for those that don't know him. But what John is saying here is he goes, look, the point that I'm getting at right here is that I'm talking about Christians interceding for one another. That's my point. Yes, sin is real. Yes, sin has effect. And yes, if you don't know God, sin will ultimately separate you from God eternally. You'll be eternally separated from him. You'll have spiritual eternal death. But I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about here, guys, is I'm talking about your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters. When they commit sin, what do you do? We pray for them. And that's why he closed verse 17, all unrighteousness is sin. But yeah, there is sin that doesn't lead to death. There is sin that doesn't lead to death, people. For a believer, it's all of it. So we never have the place to go, oh, you done did it now. You're going to hell. If they know Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, you're wrong. You're going to heaven. They may be in a place of disobedience right now, and John established very clearly, every believer can do that. It's not our habit if we're true believers. It's not our go-to, it's not our norm. But we all stumble. And my hope and prayer uh, for you guys today is that that was clear. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Because there are so many differing interpretations on these two verses in particular, and I wanted to give it Uh, the time necessary to just kind of deal with some of those challenges. But overall, um, to walk away today, my prayer for each one of us that leaves here today, whether you're online or or in the room here, is that that we leave here with a renewed sense of responsibility to pray for our brothers and sisters in the family of God. That we don't get caught up trying to go, well, did they do the one I'm supposed to pray for? Did they not do the one I'm supposed to pray for? that you would know and believe that even in your own life, there's no sin. If you truly know God, there's no sin that's gonna cause God to cast you out forever. Well, that applies to your brothers and sisters as well. And so instead of trying to figure out, is it the sin that leads to death? Is it the not? How about we back up and, 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 and look at what John is saying here. Pray for your brothers and sisters who are committing sin. It's not gonna separate them from God forever, but it is gonna wreck their life now. And so pray that God would grant them life. And then if you want to know about sin leading to death, you know, tongue in cheek, I think John's going, hey, go read another letter. That's not what we're dealing with here in my letter. When we see someone committing sin, when we see the negative effect on sin in their life, that we would be burdened with a passion to lift them up fervently to their father and ours, that we would address the spiritual need through prayer. We would address the spiritual root of sin and seek the spiritual fix that only God can provide. That we wouldn't be gossips. That we wouldn't ignore or disregard their sin or lack concern or it's not my responsibility but instead with confidence in the power of Almighty God and confidence that we have audience with him always.
with confidence that he hears us, we would pray according to his will for our brothers and sisters in the family of Christ, that they would be set free from sin, that their joy would be made full and restored, that they would find life again. It's the greatest act of love we could possibly do for one another. It's one of the ways we bear one another's burdens. It's the very nature that we have as God's children because it's the very nature of God himself. It's what Jesus is doing right now for all of us that call him our God, our Savior. So pray. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. We love you. God, we know you gave us your word to to be able to apply and learn and understand in our lives. And Lord, I fully acknowledge that, that God, in most cases, it's just the plain reading of the word that is applied to our lives. And, and I even believe you honor that, Lord. But every once in a while, there's, there's a verse like this that seems to be a little more difficult to understand. And God, this isn't about saying anybody's wrong in this and wrong in that, Lord. I just, I believe you have revealed in your word, God, um, your heart behind these verses, Lord. And so, God, your heart is that your children wouldn't sin because, Lord, you know the devastating effects of sin on, on the lives of your creation. <laughs> saved and not saved, Lord, the, the effect on sin is devastating. And, Lord, some in this world have come to accept your death on their behalf, to put their faith in you, Jesus Christ, and to receive salvation and adoption into your family, Lord. And yet, we still struggle with this sin nature that wants to get us to do all manner of wrongdoing. And Lord, just like before, when we sin, it, it wrecks our lives. God, for those that know you, we don't have to worry about the eternal judgment of God, the, the eternal separation from you after we physically die, Lord, to stand before you and, oh no, we, we've never received your blood applied to our lives, God. A genuinely saved believer doesn't ever have to worry about that again. But God, in our day-to-day -day struggles, Lord, there is sin we could commit that can physically kill us. So Lord, may we apply your, your point and purpose in these texts to pray that we would get out of those things. Lord, yes, there's sin in our lives that won't physically kill us, but it'll, it'll wreck our mental health and it'll, it just wrecks us in so many ways, God, that we as the body of Christ would pray when we see our brothers and sisters in that sin. God, that we would still pray for those that don't know you, God, that we wouldn't point to a verse like this and go, oh, not supposed to pray for them. Lord, no, your, your word clearly tells us to do that, to pray for those that don't know you who are still currently in sin without forgiveness, and they need you, Lord. So God, I just pray for those maybe in this room or online that are true believers today, and know they have eternal life, Lord, but they're actively walking in darkness right now. I pray, God, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit right now would fall upon them in such a massive way. Lord, that they would recognize the death of life that they are living in right now as they pursue disobedience, God. That, Lord, they wouldn't even feel your conviction, but they would feel your great love for them, that you so desire to set them free from those things. And that even now, Lord, in their heart of hearts, 
standing before you and you alone, they would confess that they would receive forgiveness, that they would be cleansed of all sin, and that God, you would grant them life, joy, peace, contentment. No more guilt and shame, but, but, but being able to stand before you in confidence. And that, Lord, that their lives would just be made better by you. God, we thank you for your love, and we thank you for how greatly you love us, Lord, that has been a theme through this whole letter. Help us to walk in that love. Help us to love one another and how we, how we live our lives, Lord, because our sin doesn't just affect us. Our sin hurts those around us, Lord, and it's not loving to do that. So help us to choose obedience, Lord, that we would walk in love, that we would demonstrate and exhibit love to one another. Ultimately, Lord, demonstrate and exhibit, Lord, that we truly do indeed we love you. And so, Lord, we, help, we ask that you would just help us through the power of the Holy Spirit to be people who honor and glorify your name. But, Lord, at the end of the day, that we would never forget, never disdain, never disregard our responsibility to pray for one another, especially those we see committing sin. Thank you, God, for loving us so much. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. God bless you guys, let's worship.